Good morning, everybody. Good, morning. Good to be here. This morning, we're back again with uh, Acts 12. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember the church was praying for Peter, and God miraculously delivered him from jail. Chains fell off. Light filled the jail cell. Angel took him out, and they wouldn't believe it was Peter. So we discussed the fact that thinking that what you pray for is going to happen the way you want isn't the definition of biblical faith because they didn't think it was going to happen, but it did anyhow. God uses prayer. Um, Eric, could you turn that mic on there and, and start us with prayer? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather together and learn more about your word. We thank you for our teacher, Bob, and we pray that you'd speak through him and help us to understand the text better. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand prayer and your sovereignty and how you do cause all things to work for our good. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So at the very end last time, we came to this slide. So there were some soldiers. And remember, he was subject to basically the guards in overkill. How many guards they had, how many chains they had, they were not going to let him out. And nevertheless, Eric, could you give me my cough drops? <clears throat> Thank you. Yeah. Nevertheless, Do you want something to drink? Um, I'm all right that way. I'll get this going here. They end up being punished despite the fact there's nothing they could have done to keep him in there. So it says in Acts 12, 18 and 19, now when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Now, the Greek doesn't literally say execution, but that's implied in the terminology. So I think this is an accurate translation about what actually happened. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. So this is about Herod and what he did and where he went. Now, I wanted to read something from one of my sources, Dr. Parsons. Quote, the rhetoric here is judicial. The verb question often in, occurs in trial scenes. Then he mentions where it happened in Acts. It might be best translated cross-examine. When conducted by tyrants, says Parsons, such questioning might also involve torture. So they sometimes would torture people. Now, of course, nothing's going to change the fact that it was angels that got him out of there. And so they're here. They, it was not a good career to have being a prison guard for Herod. Now, the bad, bad job choice. <laughs> Though the Greek literally reads that Herod ordered them to be taken away, the NRSV has correctly rendered it to be put to death. The later code of Justinian stated that a Roman guard would suffer the same punishment that the escaped prisoner was scheduled to receive. Now, remember, we said that the implication was 
that in order to curry favor with the Jews who were opposed to those among them who had become Christian, Herod intended to bring Peter out at Passover and execute him in order to curry favor and also make the Romans think he's doing a good job in Judea. If the citizens are happy with him, then they, they think that's a good idea. So that's kind of what was going on there. And so the, the guard would get whatever the prisoner's penalty was going to be. Thus, he parenthetically says, thus explaining the Philippian jailer's anxiety in Acts 16, 27. Remember that story, Philippian jailer? Such indicative is not unexpected in Luke's narrative by tyrants and so on. So that's what was going on there. So what the Bible tells us happened with this release of Peter, the treatment of the guards, who was in charge, and so on, comports with what is known about that particular world at that time of history. It's interesting to me, especially when I was involved in some debates and apologetics, and I debated an atheist one time on, on radio, that the setting for the Bible is in a place and part of history where a lot of things can be either verified or denied. And Luke particularly, in Luke Acts, gives details about the names of rulers, their titles, their jurisdiction, when it happened, how it happened, where it happened. And this did not happen in a quarter. The Bible was not written by some science fiction writer like, uh, who was it that made Star Trek when we were kids? Is Roddenberry? Gene Roddenberry? Some people have very amazing imaginations and they can create a whole verbal reality of a world that doesn't exist. That's what the Book of Mormon is. It's a story about a non-existent world in a non-existent place with non-existent people with a non-existent God. It's got a lot going for it, yeah. Now, for atheists and critics to criticize the Bible as if it were no different than the Book of Mormon is patently absurd. This is the sort of thing that actually happened. Now, if you already have a presupposition that there's no such thing as the supernatural, then you'll say all oh, stories of angels getting people out of prison is unbelievable. Now, that was the rationalist position for a long time. But it's interesting now that we live in a world where it's almost the opposite problem. People are willing to believe just about anything supernatural, whether it makes any sense or not. And rationalism is effectively dead. So few people 
promote Kantian rationalism nowadays. Do you have anything you want to say about that, Eric? <laughs> and so people are willing to believe the supernatural, but they want to believe an irrational version of it. And they say, you can have any religion you want, and there's no requirement that it fits with anything that happened in the real world that we know about. So that's what's going on nowadays. But here is what we know about the Bible. It did happen in real places that are, are compatible with what's known from other sources like Josephus and other secular historians. Josephus was a Jewish historian. And these sort of things did happen. And we have record that if somebody got loose, the guard got the penalty that the guy that got loose would have gotten. And so this all makes sense. Now you can choose to say there's no such thing as supernatural, but people aren't even defending that anymore. So the, the best thing to do is just believe the Bible. You won't be embarrassed that you believe the Bible because it's proven true. So we see here that this Herod, a different one than was at the very beginning of Luke. This is the here, Agrippa here, who then went elsewhere. So he went down Tyre and Sidon, Acts 12, 20 and 21. And he was, now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now this is the guy who just killed a guard, or the guards. But with one accord they came to him and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. And on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. Now, since I was in seminary in the 90s, I've always liked to look up other sources for things and read first-hand accounts. I had a great teacher, Dr. Travis, and some of my other teachers, who told us that if you're going to write a theological paper, if you want an A, you better have done primary source research. You go to a Bible encyclopedia and quote that, that's not a primary source, okay? Because they're going to tell you what Josephus said. So back then, I bought this software called Ages Software, because I couldn't afford Logos when it first came out, and they had all of this. So I do have Josephus, and so I went and pulled that up, and both in his work, Wars of the Jews, he narrates Herod's death, and in uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, on, in his work on antiquities, talked about Agrippa. So the same event is narrated by Josephus as it is by Luke. Now let me read a little bit of, of what Josephus said, and then we'll get back into Luke here, and see that they're really quite compatible. Quoting Josephus, a Jewish historian. Now, when Agrippa had reigned 
three years over all Judea, he came to the city Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower. And there he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar upon his being informed there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety. Okay, so there was the setting. At which festival, a great multitude was gotten together, says Josephus, of the principal persons such as were of dignity through his province. On the second day, by the way, human beings don't change. And if you look at political realities and speeches and people coming and having dignitaries. It's no different than we see in our day. See, people that think they believe in social evolution or that somehow humans are some other type of being than they were six, 7,000 years ago. I read Genesis. It's the same kind of thing we deal with today. Sin, pride, rebellion people capable of doing really great things, people capable of sin. So I believe that the biblical narrative of being created in God's image followed by a fall is valid. There's no reason not to believe it. Okay, so here's what Josephus said. And presently, his flatterers cried out. They're flattering Agrippa. Why? because they wanted to curry favor. Why do politicians have a celebration in honor of Caesar? They want to curry favor. They want to have good standing. Josephus, presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. Now Josephus is disagreeing with what they're doing because he's a monotheistic Jew who didn't believe that humans should be called gods, okay? So they cried out, he was a god. And they added, quote, be thou merciful to us for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature, unquote. That's Josephus. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. So Josephus said, okay, do you see anything that disagrees with what Luke is saying? Let's go on. Now this is a summary. It doesn't disagree really with Josephus. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not a man. So Josephus said they did. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. That's not good, is it? <laughs> okay, <laughs> very bad. Now let's see how Josephus says it. All right, now let me just read here. But as he there's a little more to Josephus because they had this thing about an owl. owl. They thought owls were either good or bad omens. Okay. Um, It's funny. Now I see commercials. They put owls on their commercials. I wonder why they do that. 
But as presently afterwards, he looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings, says Josephus, as it had once been a messenger of good tidings to him and fell in the deepest sorrow. So now he knows he's in trouble. He sees the owl. His severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. And uh, then evidently he made some sort of attempt, according to him, uh, to try to repent or to change something. Uh, he looked around his friends and said, I whom you call a god am commanded presently to depart this life while providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me. And I who was by you called immortal and immediately to be hurried away by death, but I am bound to accept what providence allots as it pleases God for we have no means lived ill but splendid and happy manner. So he, he shows some remorse because he believed this is really going to happen because he saw the owl according to Josephus. Now, let's get back to see if this comports with Luke. And when he said this, his pain was become violent, says Josephus. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die in a little time. But the multitude presently sat in sackcloth with their wives and children after the law of their country and besought God for the king's recovery. All places were also full of mourning and lamentation. Now the king rested in a high chamber and he saw them below lying prostrate in the ground. He could not himself forbear weeping. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life being 54th year of his age and the seventh year of his reign. So he died and through this kind of pain. And then it's also recounted in this other one, but I won't do any more Josephus right now. There's no reason to do anything besides believe the truth of the Bible. Why people try to discredit it when they know better shows that their problem is a moral problem, not an intellectual one. People will go to great extremes to try to disprove the Bible when in fact... Give Dana qu uh, credit for this. He asked me a, a question, and I thought about sharing it with everybody because it's so funny. He said, what does it all owl mean? <laughs> I had to think about that. What, oh, did I hear you wrong? What does it owl mean? Get it? I mean... Okay. Mean? <laughs> well, a little humor. I mean, all right. <laughs> so much Dana for that. Dana has a dry sense of humor. Oh, oh we got a, We got a real question here too. I think. Okay. So, uh, a quick question here. With regards to the Josephus account, it talked about them praying for Herod as a leader of their country, and I know the Bible talks about that as well. But it's just kind of interesting here. You see God's wrath on a leader, yet we're called to pray for our leaders of our country. Maybe you can comment on some of that. Yes. This is good and it's important. Now, I did a bunch of research on this yesterday. I went back into the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. Remember when he didn't give God the glory? So I went back and I was reading that. 
I don't know if Eric wants to do it or not. I, it wasn't fair of me to assign him a duty during my sermon. <laughs> I'm not in charge of anything anyhow. So we'll see, maybe I'll do it. I, I think at some point we need to talk about Nebuchadnezzar. But that's another example out of Daniel. When the Hebrews were captive in Babylon, that was one of their roles. They did, they were active and they did pray and they actually interacted with some of the leaders of Babylon. And in the New Testament, Christians are called to pray for the civil authorities. And that call to pray is not based on the civil authorities being worthy of our admiration. Whoever they may be, it's not specified. But Christians are to pay taxes, to be good citizens, and to pray for the civil leaders. Now, let me give you a little bit here, because we have an angel that came on the scene here or, or and helped Peter get released, and then the guards were killed. The interesting thing to me was I reread the Nebuchadnezzar narrative yesterday, and the watchers were involved in that narrative. Okay, here's what I believe is going on. In God's providence, we are blessed beyond what we know because we have human leaders over us. Because the alternative would be the sons of God, some of which are evil, directly being over us. Now in Daniel, the, the veil's pulled back a little bit so we can see behind the scene what's going on. Remember Michael and the Prince of Persia? Okay. In Daniel 4, there were these watchers and Nebuchadnezzar became full of pride like Herod did. And he went crazy and was grazing out in the pasture like a beast. But then his sanity came back to him and he ended up praising God and repenting. That's the story. But there's also angels there. And in Josephus, uh, talk about this. We have... Josephus wars of the Jews on this. After this, the distemper seized his whole body. It greatly disoriented all its parts, various symptoms, for there was a gentle fever on him, an intolerable itching over his body, continual pains in his colon, dropsical tumors about his feet, an inflamed uh, inflammation of the abdomen, putrefaction of his privy member, that produce worms. Sorry to do that <laughs> to you. But it's not what anybody would want as far as how to die. Now, it's, I've, I've taught this probably for 10 or 15 years. The world we live in now is during the church age, which will go right up until the rapture, 
God rules the world through human leaders. Okay? And that's why we're called to obey civil authorities unless they tell us something like we can't preach the gospel. And we're to pay our taxes and to pray for the leaders. Behind them are these spirit beings that they may not even know exist. And we're being kept from them. And however wicked the rulers of this world are, sometimes they get very, very wicked. We're better off under them than we would be under the demons behind them. Now, because of Babel, now this all started at Babel when God created the table of the nations. The world wants it back the other way. The world wants to recreate Babel. And they want to contact the spirit beings. They lust for it. In fact, they'd rather have the spirit beings even if the result is just horrid because they want to interact with the spirits, which was something God judged going back to the days of Noah. That's what the flood was about. In Babel, the Tower of Nations, I mean, the Table of Nations. And what's happening is God's restraining that. And I've taught that I believe the restrainer, not identified exactly in Thessalonians, is God using civil government to rule the world now. So whatever you don't like about our rulers, they're better than the demons. Sometimes only marginally so. <laughs> but nevertheless. So we pray for them. And so Josephus' discussion of the interaction with uh, Herod is, is, is pointing that out. So does the thing about Nebuchadnezzar. There were these watchers but on the scene of history, Nebuchadnezzar was there and he was restored. I think he came to faith. Do you think that's right, Eric? Do you have any comment about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4? Yeah, you know, um, as the king of Babylon, he's obviously literal, but he's also symbolic of what Babylon represents, this rebellion against God and the attempt to usurp him and overthrow him. And I think you're absolutely right, Bob, this repentance... There's no indication that it wasn't anything other than true, valid repentance. The other thing I was going to mention is years ago, you had done a, a Sunday school. We were at the old Fick Auditorium, and you talked about exemplary judgments and how these judgments show us that God doesn't tolerate evil, even though during the church age, what you typically see is people like Adolf Hitler aren't immediately judged or Stalin, Pol Pot, or people that we think of doing uh, grievous exactly. evil. But these serve as yes. examples that God will not tolerate evil indefinitely. Right. And see, uh, I, I got an email from one of, the more, one of these prophets again who's making all kind of grand pronunciations about politics in America as if America were Eve, Israel. I don't know why everybody thinks America is Israel. Even people who actually believe in Israel. Let me give you a clue. America is one of the nations, ethnos. America is not Israel. Israel is Israel. Okay? But at this time in history, all of the nations are under civil governments. All right? The next world leader that unifies the world is Antichrist. 
and we don't want that. All right. People trying to go in, you know, this talked about in Peter and Jude, go into the heavenlies and bypass the rural world leaders and go deal with the divine council on their own accord are, are according to Jude, uh, uh, how, how would you describe Jude? Uh, reviling angelic yeah, majesties. reviling angelic majesties. That's it. Couldn't get that one. And the implication is you, you're out of bounds. That's not your job. If you don't like what's going on, pray to God about the leaders you have. It's not our job to be in charge of the divine council or the principalities and powers. God is. And it's God's mercy that we have human leaders. We don't even know how merciful it is because that's all we've had. And so we complain about it, but we're still better off. And thank God for the pre-trib rapture. Otherwise, we'd be here to find out what it's like when the demons are in charge. And God lets them out of the abyss. That's not anywhere you want to be. And it's so bad that had God not shortened the time, everybody would be dead. Because these beings are evil and wicked, and they're of a different realm, and God's protecting us from them. Okay, so that's what's going on. But, it's, but they kept saying, a voice of God, not a man, a meeting and an angel of the Lord struck him. So here would be, uh, again, an implication of the divine council at, at, at work here. There was a immediate, by the way, the divine council isn't all evil. It's good and evil. There are good and evil beings in that divine council, yes. Sorry to go back to Babylon, but I was just thinking with Babylon, the land of Chaldeans, it's interesting to me how Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldeans and how God took him out of that, made for him a nation of his own and gave us you know, his word, who he is, how we're to find him. And you see this God against Babylon throughout scriptures. And I just yeah, think it's that's kind of a good picture. It's the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Ryan, that's a very good uh, point. And by the way, Abraham wasn't sitting around in a trance thinking, I think I'll start a re world religion. <laughs> Yahweh tangibly appeared to Abraham, just like he tangibly appeared to Moses. The tangibility of divine revelation is very, very important because people like the, uh, who started the Mormon? God, I, I should know. Joseph Smith, was that him? Uh, they're, they're goofy, they're wrong, yes. Yeah, actually to kind of take off a little bit on what Ryan had to say, I was thinking about this too. One other, when you think about the covenants of the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant, for example, in other words, at Babel, or Babel, however you pronounce it, that's when God separated the nations, but he chose Abraham, and he formed a covenant 
an unconditional covenant, and that would be a great argument for us to say, wait a minute, the United States is not Israel. The Abrahamic covenant is an eternal covenant. Those covenants of the Bible really help us, I think, to, to, right. to stay on track. Well, you know, I want to comment on that because I wrote some papers in seminary about the Reconstruction Movement. Gary North, was it, who was it? Who was the other Reconstruction? Van Til, was he one of them? Cornelius Van Til. They believe that we're supposed to create a covenant America that has a covenant with God. And they want to rule it with an iron fist. And so you take like in creedal Calvinism, they have a consistory that rules over the flock very forcefully. Well, they want to create that sort of thing for all of America and have a theocracy ruled by these Calvinist elites who are going to force all of us to obey the law. Now, I wrote a paper about that in our CAC ministry.org under scholarly about the Christian Reconstruction Movement. In the 80s, when Reagan was president, not that he was promoting this, the charismatics were getting on board with Gary North and these guys because they thought now we can do it. We can take control of America and create a covenant nation and force everybody in America to be Christian whether they want to or not. Sort of like how Rome took over nations. Now, that all fizzled out because the guy, there was a guy in Georgia who was a principal. Lonnie, do you remember who that was? Who was the preacher down in Georgia who was in promoting that? I used to, I, I mentioned him. Go ahead. By the way, that he was, eventually there was a big scandal with him. Go ahead. Um, yeah, um, I think that this is what non-Christians are afraid of us is that we, uh, they think that we want to create some sort of a theocracy and that they have to bow down to us. I think that's why they are so against us. They think like we want to form some sort of a government or something and, and rule. Uh, and uh, Well, there's a few people that do, but we don't agree yeah, with them. Right, right, right. But well, I think that's, that's a okay. big fear, in, in, especially in the political arena that they have against Christians that... Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, we need to tell people the truth about what we do know and do believe. We're better off. Early apologists such as Justin Martyr really did a very eloquent job doing that. Justin Martyr said to the civil authorities, why do you kill us? Why do you hate us? Our scriptures command us to pay our taxes, to pray for you, to love our neighbors, and to be good citizens. We're no threat to you. Why are you killing us? That's, I mean, that's a good reading if you ever want to read Justin Martyr. I read that also when I, when I, even back in Bible college, I got the actual physical books before software, and I, I have that in my, and I, I read those things. The, the Bible doesn't tell Christians to start a revolution and put ourselves in charge. And Justin Martyr was saying that who they killed, he, he's famous for the statement, uh, 
no matter what he had his uh, statement, if the Tiber overflows its banks, if the rains don't come on the crops, whatever happens, the cry is the same. The Christians to the lion. And then with some gallows humor, Justin Martyr says, what, all those multitudes to a single beast? One lion. He was, but that was the, the role there. So, dear ones, God's in charge of his own universe. God raises up the rulers, including the good or bad ones. That doesn't mean we can't judge what is good and bad. Christians have the Bible. The moral law of God is revealed in the Bible. We are able to tell the difference between good and evil when it's promoted by a civil authority. And it's not wrong for us to know that evil is evil and good is good. But we're not revolutionaries. We're people who pray for the leaders, whoever they may be, even a Herod. And God discharges with, of things as he sees fit on the scene of history. So the being eaten by worms is stated by Josephus and by Luke. So this isn't a fiction, it's cold, sober history. Amen? Amen? Don't be ashamed of your Christian faith. Don't be ashamed of the Bible because it's cold, sober truth written in, by Holy Spirit-inspired authors in real places about real events where you can go even to this day and see where it happened. And that's, I think, needs to be taught. This is not mytho mythology. So an angel brought deliverance to Peter as the church prayed. The angel brought death to Herod. Now, the church wasn't praying that Herod would die. That was just in God's providence, as even, according to Josephus, Herod said it was God's providence. He knew he was going to die when he saw the, angel, the owl. Different, isn't it? Now, Acts 12, 24 and 25. But, now we have a same change of purview here as far as what we're going to see happen. The word of God continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with him John, who is also called Mark. As we've said before, this very, very likely was Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So the Word of God continued to grow and to be multiplied. Now, these terms in the Greek for grow and multiplied are found in Acts 6, verse 7, and Acts 19 and 20. Let me read Acts 6, 7. The Word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, Jerusalem is going to be an important place in the book of Acts. It already is. But it's going to be a place of some really bad things, too. As we go forward here, we're going to go to... Paul, again now, the, the scene shifted over to Peter. 
and now it's going to go back to Antioch and Paul. But we end up with, remember there was this famine, they're taking up a collection, knowing that there's going to be poverty in Jerusalem. Notice that Herod was loved because he was feeding some people. Okay, they were agricultural. And if some part of, the, of the, that part of the world had no rain, people were going to starve. Okay, they were very vulnerable. So that's what was going on there. Now what happens here is the scene is going to go back to Antioch, but it's going to be headed toward Jerusalem. And what is going to happen that creates a crisis is that the Judaizers are gradually getting the upper hand in Jerusalem. And what they would like to do is to force all the Gentiles who would want to be Christian to obey the law of Moses. And Paul was so strongly against this. This backdrop is what's happening later in Acts 15 when they gather to decide the matter. The apostles who were appointed by Jesus, thank you for pointing it out in your sermons, Eric, they were appointed by Jesus and taught by Jesus, gathered and determined that Gentiles were not obliged to keep the law of Moses. Okay? But that was obviously not accepted by some people in Jerusalem. So Paul is going to Jerusalem. Remember, there's an echo of Jesus going to Jerusalem to be rejected from Luke 9.51 all the way through in this travel narrative in Luke. Now Paul becomes the one going to Jerusalem to be rejected. And remember, Agabus tied a, his, around his waist said, you're going to be bound. And the people were begging Paul not to go, but he did. He was bound to go. And sure enough, he was rejected at Jerusalem. But the civil government intervened or he would have probably died in Jerusalem. And then he appealed because he had bought a Roman citizenship. And so he appealed, and that appeal led him before kings to testify about the gospel. So that's where we're going with Luke Acts. So the church is multiplying and has always been the case. Persecution causes the growth of the church. Because Christians may be persecuted and scattered, but they're not dissuaded from preaching the gospel if they know Christ. Because back then, the only reason to be a Christian is if you knew Christ. Now, remember Simon the sorcerer, he wanted to buy the Holy Spirit, but was renounced as an apostate by Peter. But these were people who believed in Christ and trusted him. So the scene is going to shift back to Antioch. By the way, the threat to the faith is not persecution. It's false teaching and false teachers. We can't get Christians to renounce Christ. You can get them to believe in a false Christ and preach a false religion. Rather than 
simply praying for our civil government and paying taxes, we still have people saying, well, we're going to make a deal with the pagans and we're going to Christianize the countries of the world. Remember Rick Warren doing that? His peace plan? Christianity is not about forgiveness of sins or repentance and faith in the blood atonement. It's about making the world a better place to live in. That idea came, was preached by Robert Schuller, and then picked up by Rick Warren, who was still promoting it. That's not Christianity. Christianity is about the forgiveness of sins through the blood atonement, not making a, the world a better place to live in. Where is this world headed for? Does anybody know? Judgment, yes. We have a question here. Yeah, I was uh, just pondering on that. Uh, you know, it's true in history, you can see like Israel or the church comes back to God when there's, when there's hard times. And yet in the scripture, it says to pray for peace. And, and you can see that there's loyal people even in a time of peace, like maybe Caleb and Joshua would be an example of that. But it's just interesting how we, we can seek God, but it's like, man, persecution drives us there. But it's almost like also kind of like a warning, like, man, when the times are good, it's like how, how often people in the Bible grow slack and just kind of take in the things of the world instead of seeking God. And you know. Well, it's, it's very true that it may be more dangerous for us when, when we're in a time of peace and prosperity to think that we deserved it and that we don't need God and that we can trust in riches. Uh, I, sometime, Eric, I got to talk to you in private about it, but we need to d go through that. Maybe I need to do it because it was my idea. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. Remember what went wrong with him? This is Babylon the Great that I made. And he started praising himself. And he ended up out like a cow eating grass, lost his sanity. What happened to Herod was he was struck dead by an angel and worms ate him. Uh, there's always this danger of not giving God glory and not trusting him. This morning while I was uh, getting myself awake and ready to get ready to come to church, I turned on a, quote, Christian broadcast. It was one of these health and wealth teachers. And he was mocking people for praying for things that we should just claim. And listening to him, I thought, does this guy think it's a sin to have the Lord's Prayer? What does the Lord's Prayer say? Give us this day our daily bread. He was mocking people who do that. You're supposed to claim, I've got more than enough. I got more than abundance. I and how great we are. Don't mock brothers and sisters in need who ask God to provide for them. That's wrong. But this guy obviously got enough money to be on TV to do that. He claims our words are going to determine what we get. Well, fine. Lord, why is it wrong to humble ourselves before God? It is not. 
Why is it wrong to depend on God? It is not. When we confess our need for daily bread, we're confessing our dependence on God and not being haughty like Herod or Nebuchadnezzar before he repented and realizing that even the air we breathe is God's gift to us of breath and life. Yes, Brother Steve. Uh, yeah, I just want to direct your attention to Deuteronomy, the eighth chapter, starting at the 17th verse. Do not say to yourself, my power and might of my own hand has gotten me this wealth, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth so that you may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing today. Yes, remember the Lord and his promises. You know, I have a sermon that I... I have written, and I, I just sent the email for the first round of, uh, I sent the PowerPoint to be to my first proofreader, but it's about remembering. And we're, we're, we're to remember where we came from. And that's reminding us, by the way, a lot of times in the Old Testament, when there was apostasy, they were chided by the prophets for having forgotten that they were slaves in Egypt. The passage next Sunday is in Deuter, excuse me, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, but I'm going to take two weeks to get through it because I want to explore the use and abuse of memory as part of the sermon and refute some inner healing theories. But nevertheless, when they forgot that God brought them out of Egypt, when they forgot that God gave them deliverance from Pharaoh when they forgot that they came through the Red Sea and they started to murmur we're, well let's go back to Egypt it was a lot nicer there remember that the book of yeah, the book of Hebrews take, takes up that theme and calls it apostasy they want to go back dear ones we can't forget where we came from we were without God Aliens, aliens, separate from the citizenship of Israel, without God, without God, without hope in this world. That's what we're going to be preaching on the next two weeks. And the Lord's Supper is instituted by the Lord himself with the words, do this in the imperative in remembrance of me. Why do we need to remember the Lord? So we know why we exist. Why do we exist? Because like Israel who was brought out with a mighty hand from Egypt, we were brought out through the sprinkled blood, the blood of Christ that cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We remember the Lord's death until he comes because we're looking back to why we even exist and giving him the praise and glory and looking forward to his promise to come again. And he said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you will be also. And I remember Eric pointed out, he said, if it were not so, I would have told you. If all we have is what's in this world, Jesus said, I would have told you. But it's not true. We have an eternal hope. And we have the hope of the return of Christ. 
And we are a people of history. We have been made one new man with Jewish believers. We'll read that as we go through Ephesians 2. And we are to remember what God did for us. And that's so very, very important. So now the scene, see what we got here. We've only got five minutes. I don't want to start a theological discussion. But Acts 6 and verse 7, the word of the Lord kept on spreading. Let me say this in just a few minutes. After preaching now for 45 years, I'll have to point out something. I wish seminaries and young people that are being trained would know. The thing that God is going to use is the word of God, which is inerrant, it's sufficient, it's infallible, and it'll do what God sent it to do. There is no reason ever to do marketing survey of the pagans in the neighborhood to hear what they want to know if they go to church. What would you like if you went to church? That's what they do. The biggest churches in the Twin Cities that call themselves evangelical have done this. Well, we want, we want loud music there. It's like going to a rock concert. That's all we want. Okay, check. We want a relative, relevant message. We want to feel good. We don't want to hear about guilt and sin. Check. One time I was at home, one of the times I was very sick and the doorbell rang. I went to the door and here's, I told the story before, but there was a young man and his wife and they were starting a new church in our town here at St. Louis Park. And they were, had flyers. They said, we're going to be starting a new church. We're going to meet in this theater down here. And um, we're, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be relevant. And so I asked the question. Here's the guy the and his wife. Will the gospel be preached? You should have seen it. The wife goes. She was stunned. Nobody asked that. She didn't answer. She, she was stunned. And she'd been doing the talking. Pointed to the pastor over here. The pastor looked at me and said, no, the gospel will not be preached. Okay. At least the guy told me the truth. So, the word of God multiplies and spreads when we preach it. It doesn't matter what people want to hear. God will, has chosen to use the foolishness, using that term ironically, of the message preached to save those who will believe. Preach the gospel and we'll find out who will believe. And that's how God multiplies the church is through the preaching of the word of God. We don't need massive institutions. We do not need to be popular. We don't need to be big. That's in God's hands. But we need to be faithful. And if anybody's listening to this, if you're going into the ministry, learn the word of God, know it, believe it, 
understand it, and proclaim it, because God will use that. And let him take care of all this. You cannot fail God by accurately preaching the word. You can't harm the flock by accurately preaching the word. And you will have no regrets if you accurately preach the word. 20, 30, 40 years later, you'll be able to look back, say, well, it was tough, a lot of trials, a lot of problems, a lot of difficulties, but thank God the word was preached for what it means. And God will use that. Let us close in prayer. By the way, I want to pray for a pastor that I know in Kenya, only via email, but I've spent a few years and they had horrible floods and most of the congregation was scattered. I'm thinking about scattered flock here because there was nowhere to live after the flood wiped out their area. And, a couple, and so he's back trying to see if he can find a few people to teach the word in that village. And so I told him I would pray. His name is Eric, and we're going to pray for him. Dear Lord, thank you for being faithful to the word and for these dear people in the book of Acts, like Peter, the apostle, who preached the word, and Paul, who preached the word. May we be faithful to teach and preach the word. Pray for Pastor Eric in Kenya, whose flock and church was wiped out by this big flood, but yet still trusts you and believes you. We pray that you would gather a little fellowship there to start again a church that opens the word of God together. Pray for him and pray for Pastor Eric as he preaches the word to us from Timothy that we may learn and grow and believe your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, dear flock. God bless you. Love you.